message with you on how we limit God's work in our life. Now, in the ultimate sense, God is not limited by anything, right? But there is a sense in which God can be limited, and that's when we impose our limitations on Him. In other words, we put stipulations and limitations on Him that prevent Him from doing what He can do. And uh, so I want to show you a story this morning that uh, I think shows... Uh, some ways that we limit uh, God in our response to Him. I read about a, a tribal village where everyone was falling sick, and there was a missionary doctor, and he went into the village to try and help them. And he suspected, and he soon discovered, that uh, the problem was contaminated water. They were drinking this contaminated water, and it was causing the sickness. And so he wanted to show the people what was happening, and he set up a table in the village, and he put a microscope, a microscope on the table, and he showed them uh, a, a slide of the water and the bacteria that was in the water that was causing uh, the, sick, uh, the sickness. Well, later that night, everybody was asleep, and uh, in the little clinic that the doctor had set up, someone got up in the middle of the night, went to the clinic, clinic and found the microscope and destroyed it because they believe that the microscope if it were gone then so would the sickness go with it you know faith is a lot like that our, our belief is a lot like a microscope uh, it enables us to see things that we could not otherwise uh, see and never would see but if we have no faith then it's like destroying the microscope that helps us see beyond just what our physical eyes allow. And today we're going to read a story, a story that's familiar to, to you, part of it, not the whole story. We're going to read about Lazarus. And uh, you know, many of you know that story about how he died. And uh, Jesus uh, waited several days before he showed up. And then Jesus, of course, brings him back from the grave. But in between his death and um, his resurrection being brought back to life, uh, there's some interesting um, uh, truths, I believe, that will help us understand how we too uh, can limit God if we're not careful. Would you stand with me if you're physically able to do so as we read God's Word beginning in verse 28? The Scripture says, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Lord, would you take now and open our eyes and cause us to see, Father, the great truths of your word. Father, would you cause our hearts right now to be unencumbered by anything that the enemy would try to clutter our lives, our minds with. 
Would you cause us, Father, to right now tune in to you, to listen carefully to what your word teaches, and Father, allow its power to transform us. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Now, um, this is a very familiar story, and again, we kind of broke into the middle of it. Uh, It is the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and it's rich with uh, many practical and profound truths about faith, about miracles, and about our opportunities to see the power of God. It is a story that affirms the divinity uh, of Jesus Christ, but it also reflects the humanity of Christ. And it demonstrates that God is in control. He's in control of life, and He's in control of death. And and that he has a plan and a purpose behind everything that he's doing. And there's an important question that is asked in this story, and it is really the great question of all time. It's this question, do you believe? Do you believe? This is the question that Jesus asked uh, Martha, and uh, Martha answers it, but you'll see her answer represented a bit of shallowness in her faith. A lot like ours, isn't it? And so this is still the question of the ages. Now, most people who confess to be followers of Christ also confess to believe in the power of Christ. Would you agree with that statement? Most people that say, I'm a follower of Christ, would also say, yes, and I believe in the power of Christ. Most people would say that, uh, at least theoretically. But many times, our faith limits what God wants to do in our life. Many times our shallow faith restricts what God can do in our life. I think about Matthew 13, 58, where Jesus went to his own hometown. And you remember what he said? He said he didn't do mighty works there because of their unbelief. He wanted to do many things, but they had restricted his ability. Not that he couldn't, but their faith limited what he could do for them. F.B. Meyer, the great preacher Uh, from Westminster Chapel in England once said this, unbelief, listen, puts our circumstances between us and God. Do you get that? Unbelief puts our circumstances between us and God. But belief puts God between us and our circumstances. You might say that this story is all about moving from faith that is theoretical and confessional to faith that is experiential and from uh, from the idea of faith that uh, is just uh, uh, something I say to faith that is something I experience it is this supernatural kind of faith encounter so uh, why do we not see more of this kind of faith the kind of faith that enables God to do the mighty works that he desires to do in our life or in our circumstances. Well, I think the reason is, as I want to talk about today, because we limit God. And I think in this story we see at least three limitations that are placed uh, on God. The first is this, we limit God with our practical stipulations. Verses 21, we didn't read that, but keep your Bible open in this story. This is Martha. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had have been here, my brother would not have lived. And then if you go back down to verse 32, Mary, her sister, says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We limit God with our practical stipulations. In November 1837, a distinguished British physicist named Dionysius Lardner 
proved mathematically with the equations to support it that no one could question. Mathematically, he proved that a steamship would be incapable of a non-stop voyage from England to New York. He produced his uh, math, his, uh, uh, his equations, again, that were unquestionably uh, solid, and he printed copies of his proof. And they arrived in New York on April 24th, 1838. The only problem was they arrived on board a ship called the Sirius, which was the first ship to cross the Atlantic entirely by steam. So much for his mathematical equations and calculations. So much for the, the practical uh, implications. But you see, we have to be very careful because if we're, we're not, what we will often do with our faith is we will take practical kinds of stipulations or maybe even we'll say, here's the empirical data as to why this can't happen. You know, when God does something almost always, sometimes he uses the natural order, but even when he does that, it is what we call a miracle. And so if we're not careful, we say, well, it doesn't fit the empirical data that we have. A steamship can't sail from England to New York because the math says it can't do it, but it did. And sometimes we say God can't do something. Why? Because the empirical data doesn't support it. And what we end up doing is we put these stipulations on him and so he doesn't do it. Because the fact is, when God intervenes between us and our circumstances, it is called a miracle. The fact that it is a miracle means it doesn't fit empirical data. Does that make sense? And notice something, if you will. Mary and Martha both believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They both believed He was the Lord. In verse 27, if you've got your Bible open, look there. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. This is a response to Jesus' question, do you believe? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the, the, the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Her confession right there was, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you are the Messiah that we've been looking for. She confesses about who he is, and then her, her sister does the same thing. It says Mary came to where Jesus was in verse 32, and she fell at his feet. Do you know what that was? She, and she, by the way, she calls him Lord. Kurios is the Greek word there. She recognized who he was. She fell at his feet. This is an act of worship. I know who you are. I recognize you. Both of them, Mary and Martha, believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But their problem was their faith was limited by these practical stipulations that they put on, uh, on Jesus. And in this particular case, it was a matter of time, the, uh, the timing of Christ. Now, Jesus waited four days before he went to raise Lazarus. Why did he do that? Well, uh, there are a number of uh, uh, reasons he did that, but one in particular was he wanted to make sure no one could say, well, Lazarus really didn't die. He just fell asleep and Jesus showed up and he heard his friend and he came out of this coma he was in. So he went, because the, the comment is made in the story when Jesus said, let's go to the tomb and roll the stone away, the, the sister said, Lord, he stinketh. He'd been there that long. And, uh, and so their stipulation was, Lord, it's too late. Your timing is bad. 
If you had have shown up earlier, different story. And that's their, their, their stipulation problem. You had to be here at the right time in order for Lazarus to be raised. In order for the miracle to happen, you had to be here on our time frame. If you'd have been here when he was alive, when, when he was sick, most likely he was sick. If you'd have been here then, you could have done something. But they now assumed it was too late. Now, I want to ask you, do you find that your faith in God is often affected by your assumptions? Do you ever find that your faith and your confidence in God is often, uh, often based on your assumptions or stipulations in which you assume that uh, Jesus is affected? And his ability is affected to intervene and demonstrate his power. There's just two little words in, in this uh, verse 32, but they're powerful words. They are the words, if you, that Mary utters to Jesus, Martha uttered those words. They reflect a fledgling kind of faith. They say volumes about uh, her faith, if you, but it also reflects the fact that the faith that she had was very, very limited. In Mark 9, 20 and 24, Jesus had heard these words before. If you, there was a, there was a, a man who came to Jesus and his son was demon-possessed. You remember the story? And, and uh, well, just listen, listen to how the story goes. In uh, Mark 9, verse 20 and following, it says, And they brought the boy to him, uh, and when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground. That is, when the spirit, the demonic spirit, saw Jesus, it convulsed him. It fell on the ground, caused the boy to fall on the ground and roll around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. And he has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And the father then says this, but if you can do anything, if you... There it is again, those two words. Jesus, the same words that Mary and Martha had used, this man used. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, exclamation point. And then he says, all things are possible for one who believes. And I love the line of the father. Immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, if you, if you can do anything at this stage, if you can do anything, and this is what Mary and Martha had said, if, if you can do anything. Now, if you'd have been here, if you'd have been here, then our brother would still be alive. The man's statement is honest and humble. Mary and Martha's is a little bit of a friendly rebuke to their dear friend Jesus. Jesus, we know who you are. We know you're the Lord. And if you'd have just been here, if you'd have just been here, timing, your timing is poor, Lord. That's what they were saying. That's the kind of stipulation we put on Jesus. Jesus, your timing is poor. I know how time works. And if you'd have just been here, the man said, now, if you can, by the way, the man teaches us a couple of uh, helpful things, two things that all of us can do. Now, he confessed his shallow faith, didn't he? He said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He confessed that every once in a while. You know, it's a good thing to just say to Jesus, Jesus, I, I believe, help my unbelief. I relate to that. Do you relate? Lord, I, I believe, help my unbelief. But my belief needs to go to another level, Lord. 
more than just confessional. Take me to another place. And this man confessed his shallow faith. And I tell you, he did something else we can do. He cried out for deeper faith. And Jesus heard him and healed his son. All of us can do that. You see, if is not a word that works with God. If is not a word that works with God. And so we have to be careful not to apply our, listen, our earthly stipulations on his capacity to work. It, it, we must be careful that we don't take the earth time and apply them to Jesus in order for him to work. And it's easy to do, right? Because we believe, but often our belief is in the boundaries of what uh, uh, our senses tell us. All right? So that's number one. We limit God with these practical stipulations. But there's another way we can limit God, and that is we can limit God with our personal expectations. Verse 21 and 32 again, if you had been here, underscore the word here. In the first point, you underscore the word or circle the word if, because it's about timing. This is about location. Lord, if you had have been here, our personal expectation, if you had have been here, it is a subtle rebuke to Jesus that is reflected in their expectations that in order for Jesus to do what needs to be done, he would have to be where they thought he should be. Okay, if you had have been here. You remember there are occasions in the New Testament where Jesus, Jesus healed from a distance. He, he did his work from a distance. We have to be careful that we don't have these personal expectations. I know Jesus can do it, and I believe he can do it, but we've got to get him here. You see what's going on? Do you ever, are you ever like that? You say, Jesus, you gotta, here's where you've got to be to do what I know you are able to do. I know you can do it. I just need you to do it right here. And sometimes Jesus says, it's, look, I can do what I want to do from wherever I am. Why is it that Jesus rarely did miracles the same way? Have you ever thought about that? He rarely did. I mean, when he healed people, he did it. One time he, he, he makes mud pies and puts in a guy's eyes, right, and, and heals him. Other occasions, he, he, he raises a little girl, goes to her house and raises a little girl. Other occasions, he says, go your way, your servant has been made well. I mean, he does them in so many different ways. Why did he do that? I'm glad you asked because I've got the answer for you. The reason that Jesus did not do miracles the same way is because we would uh, reduce miracles to a formula. Uh, that's our personal expectations. Okay, we figured out how Jesus does miracles, and so every miracle has to be done in a certain way. This way, this way, this way, this way, this way. And so what we do is we put him in a package, and that package is one we've designed, not one that he's created. And so in so doing, maybe even with good intentions, we restrict his ability or his power in our life. Because we have these personal expectations. Lord, if you'd have been here, you got to be here. Lord, you're late and you're in the wrong place. Wrong place, wrong time. That's what they were kind of arguing. If we're not careful, we do the very same thing. And it's not malicious, is it? But listen, believing God must never be hostage to three things. Write these down. Number one, it must not be hostage to my timing. Believing God, having faith in God, must not be 
hostage to my timing. When we assume that God has to operate on our schedules, we are making him hostage to our time frame. Another thing that, that we must never, never, our belief must never hold God hostage to, and that is our location, my location. When we expect God to operate in a certain place, we must never hold him hostage. This is the place. You got to do it here. If you don't do it here, it can't get done. And then the third, the third thing about belief that we must never hold God hostage with is my process or my prescription. That is, when we have already determined ahead of time how God will operate and do his work. And we do that, don't we? we because our minds, we, we start trying to figure it out. It, this is what needs to be done. And because this is what needs to be done, I've already figured out how it needs to happen. And some of that is natural. That's, that's inside. But when you're, when you're talking about expressing faith in God to do the supernatural, what you have to do is say, God, I'm not going to hold you hostage to my time, to my location, or to my prescription or my process. God, I, I release you to be who you are in my life. I'm not going to restrict you. I'm not going to hold you hostage by those things. Do you remember the story of Naaman the leper in the Old Testament? How many of you remember the story of Naaman and the, old, uh, the, the leper? You remember Naaman was a Syrian, uh, listen, right, he's a military general. He's a right-hand man to the king of Syria. But he's a leper, the Bible says. It describes all his, his uh, accolades and that sort of thing. And then it says, but he was a leper. And he had a little servant girl, and she was an Israeli, and that little servant girl told him about a, a man of God named Elisha the prophet. And she said, if you'll go see, if you can see him, he will heal you of your leprosy. What a, what a word from a little servant girl. That's a whole nother sermon. But Naaman finally goes, he goes to Elisha, and, uh, and Elisha doesn't come out to greet him. Instead, Elisha just sends a servant out, and the servant says, uh, my master says, just go Go wash in the Jordan seven times. You'll be clean. And Naaman, do you remember his response? He gets angry. He gets angry. And listen, well, I'll let him tell you in his own words about why he got angry. The scripture says in 2 Kings 5, But Naaman was angry and he went away, saying, listen, here's what he said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And so he got angry when he didn't get what he had already decided would be the way that he would be healed from the God of Israel through the man of God, Elisha. And when it didn't happen the way he thought, he left angry. He said, I just thought, look, does he know who I am? What do you mean? He sends a servant out and says, go wash in the Jordan seven times. He said, we got better rivers in Syria. That's what his response was. If I, that's just about taking a bath. I can take a bath in my homeland. And uh, fortunately, his servant said, what do you have to lose? He did finally do what, what had been uh, told uh, for him to do from a distance but here's the whole point of that it didn't work the way he thought it was supposed to work I wonder how many times have have you and I missed the power of God because we had limited God based on the way we thought he ought to do it this is the way he's got to do it 
He's got to do it right here. He's got to do it on my schedule. And these are the steps that he'll take. He'll wave his hands and he'll cure the leper. But oftentimes God God doesn't do it according to our personal expectations. That's why we need to, to listen to his declarations. You know what? What does he say to us? What message has he sent to us? How has he spoken to us? And our response isn't to pout. Well, he, that's not. God didn't tell me. God didn't give me the word I thought he was going to. We don't pout. We're not to procrastinate. If he tells us to do something, we are to do it. And, and we're not to debate. Well, God, I, you know, you're, there you are. Here I am. And here's how my world works. <laughs> Now, we might not be so arrogant as to say it that way, but when we debate what God tells us to do, what we're really saying is, I think you kind of miss the way we operate here. And if we're not careful, what what God just lets us do it. And then we miss Him. And we miss His power in our life. We limit Him with these personal expectations. You know, when you think about obeying God when it makes sense, and when it doesn't make sense, think about Noah. I mean, he could have been the poster child for faith and obedience. But I wonder, I wonder if Noah ever felt foolish out there building a boat out in his backyard. I, I wonder, were there days when he thought about quitting and not holding on to what God had instructed him to do? Because you see, for Noah, building this boat was a huge step of faith and obedience because there was no water around where he lived. And it had never rained before. It didn't make sense, right? God had built a boat and built one that size and built it out back on my property when people are going to ridicule, and they did for a hundred years. The Bible says they ridiculed, they made fun of it, and he stayed with the task. It didn't make sense. What's rain, God? And, and there's no water. How, I, don't have a, I don't have a boat trailer big enough to get this one to the water. He's the poster child for faith and obedience, isn't he? It didn't make sense. And he is a reminder. Listen, that story is a reminder to us for, for so many things. But it's a reminder in particular that you are to trust and obey when you don't see any other way. Trust him. Hang on to what God has said to you. There's some of you watching today, and there's some of you in this live audience, and you're struggling because God has said something to you, and you don't see how it's going to happen, and you don't see how it's going to work out, and your faith is wobbling, and you're thinking about giving up or quitting. Don't. Hold on to what God has said. Believe in what God has said. Your timing and God's timing are different. And he's still in control. So we limit God with our practical stipulations. You know, God, if you'd have been on my schedule. We limit God with our personal expectations. You know, God, if you'd have just been right here, this is where you could have done your work. And then last, we limit God with pointless speculations. Look at verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Pointless speculations. Mark Twain, Mark Twain said this. He said, there are two times in a person's life when they should never speculate. Number one, they should never speculate when they can't afford it. 
And number two, they should never speculate when they can afford it. His point is, just don't speculate. It's frankly speculating about what God is up to in particular, in most cases, is just plain foolish, right? And that's what's going on here. In spite of, 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 of what's going on, they say, this is the guy that, that he, he opened the eyes of blind people. He, he's healed lepers. He's done all of these things. And, and yet, his own friend he couldn't keep from the grave. There's speculation. It's all pointless. It's the assumption that you can figure out what's going on in the mind and the plans of God. Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? Well, if, if God is a God of love, or if God is a God of healing, or if God is a God of mercy, or, or if God is a God of, and you fill in the blank, you ever heard something like that? And if he were, then he would do this, or this, or this, or this. Do you know what that is? That's pointless speculation. Proverbs 14, 12, listen to this, says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And it is speculation when we start trying to say this is what God has done. It is speculation that is based almost always on our thoughts and our ways. In fact, it's an arrogant attempt to make God fit into our minds and our logic. When we start speculating on, on God, we are arrogantly assuming we can make him fit right here. And he'll fit right inside my mind and my thoughts. That's why Isaiah says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so uh, are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways higher than your ways. You see, if we're not careful, pointless speculation, speculating about God assumes that we're actually smarter than God and that God, therefore, should adjust to our ideas. It's a subtle way of trying to make God a hostage to uh, uh, our ideas and our thoughts and it is a subtle way of holding him to the expectations that we have a better way. I got a better way, God. And it all makes sense to me. Therefore, God, it ought to make sense to you, and you ought to do it my way. Romans 1, 21 and 22. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They became futile. Why? Because they decided that their ideas about God were the ideas about God and that God had to fit into their way of thinking. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. Does that sound like the world you're living in today? Speculating about God's ways is actually dangerous and detrimental to your spiritual health. You say, how is it? How is it dangerous to my spiritual health? Well, write these down as best you can or go back and listen to this later. But let me, let me give you four dangers about speculating regarding the ways of God. Four, four dangers when you start speculating on what God is up to. Danger number one is this. When we speculate on the ways of God, we make the assumption that we have the capacity to understand God. 
Let me say that again. When we speculate on the ways of God, we make the assumption that we have the capacity to understand God. And let me tell you what that does. It, it, it leads us to creating formulas. And when you create formulas, you assume that God will always follow your formulas. And if he doesn't, guess what? You'll be disappointed or worse, you're going to miss where and how he is working. All right, you got that? That's number one. Number two, when we speculate on the ways of God, we make the assumption that God will subject himself to our thoughts. When we speculate on his way, we make the faulty assumption that God will adjust himself to our thought. Now, while God loves us, let me, I don't want to hurt your feelings this morning, but let me just say it frankly. While God loves you, he's not overly concerned with what you think. All right? He, he's not overly concerned. He's not in heaven wringing his hands going, what does Ray think? You know, I think I'm going to do it this way, but I wonder if I ought to check in with Ray. He, he, God's not overly concerned with what you think about his wills and his ways. If you, if you say, well, I just don't think I like the way God's doing that, God doesn't go, well, let me rethink it. God's not that concerned. You know why? Because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's why C.S. Lewis said, one day when we walk into heaven, we're not going to do what we hear people say all the time. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God. Most of the time, I want to say to that person, what makes you think you're going to heaven? But when I get to heaven, here's what I'm going to ask God. We're not going to walk in. C.S. Lewis says we're going to walk in and go, oh, now I see. That God's ways and God's thoughts are higher than our ways and our thoughts. And so when we speculate on the ways of God, we make the assumption that God will subject himself to our thoughts. He's just not that concerned about what he's concerned about you, but he's not concerned about what you think about his wills or way. He's concerned that you will say, God, whatever your will and whatever your ways, I submit. Here's a number, uh, number three, danger, number three. When we speculate on the ways of God, we make the assumption that God is incompetent and thus not trustworthy. Well, I don't know. He, he, you know, how can this guy who opened the couldn't he kept this man from dying? I mean, if he had the power to uh, uh, heal a blind man, couldn't he have prevented this? We assume that God is incompetent. And if he's incompetent, then we, the next progression is to drift away from him as untrustworthy. And there are a lot of people who've come and gone through the years in the, in the church. And John says they went out from us because they were never really one of us. And that can be true. And sometimes there are people that, that, that drift away. Why do they drift away? Because they made assumptions about God, about how God would do his work in, in, in their life. And, and when God didn't do it in their life the way they thought, or if God had a higher purpose that he didn't let them in on, they assumed that God was incompetent. And if God is incompetent, then I don't want to trust him. And they drift away. There are people in our world today, and they're, they're, at least their excuse is, I don't want to follow God because God doesn't do this and this and this and this and this. He, he, therefore, he must be incompetent, and if that's who God is, I'm not going to trust him. And then here's the fourth danger. When we speculate on the ways of God, we often miss God's bigger picture. You see, speculating can prevent you from seeing that there's more going on 
than what your physical eyes and your physical mind think. Uh, so, see, so they don't get it. See, they don't know what's going on. They don't realize that Jesus is about to bring Lazarus from the dead. They're, all they're thinking about is, couldn't he have kept him from dying? Speculation, pointless speculation, because they don't know what God's up to. They don't know the, 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 uh, the plan that God has. And when we speculate on the ways of God, we often miss that God's got a bigger picture going on. And it, if we speculate, we can prevent ourselves from seeing that there's so much more going on that we don't even know about. In 1858, a scientific expedition passed through what we now call the Grand Canyon. And, and a young lieutenant led the expedition by the name of Ives. Listen to, the, listen to the recording he made in his report. And I quote, he said, This region we last explored, the Grand Canyon, is, of course, altogether valueless. It can be approached only from the south, and after entering uh, the canyon, there is nothing to do but leave it. Ours has been the first, and doubtless will be the last party to visit this profitless locality. It seems intended that the Colorado River, along the great portion of its lonely and majestic way, shall for, be forever unvisited and undisturbed. <laughs> well, obviously, the young man did not see what, what was behind what he was seeing. He did not appreciate the values of the Grand Canyon. And rather than being the last party to visit it, he was but the one of many that would follow. And many people, as you know, have seen the Grand Canyon. Perhaps you've seen it, appreciated the value and the enormity of the canyon that this young officer missed. But I want to tell you something. When we limit God in our lives... We restrict God to our physical senses, and guess what? We don't see the bigger picture. This young man didn't see the bigger picture. He, he, he saw only what his senses in the moment would tell him. And, and when we do that with God, we miss out on the opportunity to see the bigger plans um, and purposes of God fulfilled. What, what's the proper response? Well, the proper response, as we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, is that we must walk by faith and not by sight. Now, what does that really functionally mean? What does it mean for us to walk by faith and not, not by sight? Well, it means that we choose to trust God and obey Him. We tr choose to trust Him. It's a choice that we make. I choose to trust Him. In other words, He doesn't have to answer to me. He doesn't have to explain Himself to me. I choose to trust Him. That's number one. That's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, secondly, I tell you, it means that we choose to believe in the truth that he, he has revealed in his word and to let that truth direct our path. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we, we, we choose to believe in the truth that he has revealed in his word and we, let, we adjust our life accordingly to the word of God. And then functionally it means that we choose to elevate spiritual sight over physical sight it means that we choose to say what is going on in the spiritual world is far more significant than just what my eyes can see in the physical world and that'll help you sometimes if you're going through a crisis or struggling to say god do you know what's going on god would answer and say yeah absolutely and there's more going on even than you see it means that we choose to elevate our spiritual sight over physical sight. It, we choose to believe in the truth of the revealed word of God. We choose to trust God and then subsequently obey Him. That's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. 
Now, don't raise your hands. Don't raise your hands this morning. But answer a question. How many of you want a faith that's stronger? A faith that's deeper? A faith that is more durable? I'm going to tell you something. The Bible says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? There's a lot of evidence in our world today that people are renouncing their faith. There are, there are notab- notable Christian uh, servants around the globe in the last year who have come out publicly and said, I'm no longer a Christian. Well, uh, you, it's not I'm no longer a Christian. You never were a Christian. But the question is for us, do you really believe, the question we started with and the question that Jesus asked both Mary and Martha, you, do you believe, do you believe Do you want a deeper faith? Jesus was, look, he was doing something here. He was growing their faith. He prays later in in this passage, and he says, Lord, uh, um, I know you hear me. And then he adds, I know you always hear me, but I don't pray that for my sake because I I believe, I know you hear me. He says, I'm saying it for those people listening, those people around me, so that they will uh, understand the power of prayer. They will understand the power of God and that they will hear and they will listen. He said, that's why I'm saying it. Jesus is up to something here. If you want a deeper faith, if you you want a, a, a sturdier faith that will endure the test of time, you got to ask yourself if you're willing to do some things. Are you willing to declare that Jesus is Lord and worship him faithfully? Not just confess something. we got a world full of confessors. <clears throat> the question is, will you declare him Lord and then demonstrate his lordship by worshiping him? She fell down at his feet. Mary fell down at his feet. Secondly, are you willing to devote yourself to knowing him more than ever before? I'm going to go deeper. I'm going to, I, I'm going to seek him like never before. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me, Jeremiah writes. And then you must decide. You must decide to, to obey him even when it doesn't fit your understanding of things. I will obey you, God. I will look to you as the source and I will obey you. If you want a deeper faith, you may have to declare him Lord and worship him. If you want a deeper faith, you're going to have to devote yourself to knowing him more. Not just settle with a relationship that's kind of stable here, but a relationship that says, God, I'm going deeper. I'm going below the surface. And then you must decide to obey him, even when it doesn't fit your understanding of things. All of these are acts of faith. In fact, John writes in 1 John 5, he says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Listen, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes in Jesus, the Son of God? Our victory is faith. Our faith is expressed in an object. By the way, following Christ isn't, it's not a a blind leap of faith. I hear that today. Well, it's a blind leap of faith. You know, I'm going to do it, but it's a blind. No, it isn't. It's not blind because your faith is being placed in an object who has proven himself through the ages, Jesus Christ. So see, it's not a blind leap. It's not faith for the sake of faith. We're, we're, we hear things like that all the time in our world today. Well, just believe. But in what? Well, it doesn't matter. Just believe. That's what we're told. Just believe. Just whatever you want to believe, believe. Just believe in something. That's, listen, folks, that's a damning heresy. 
We believe in Jesus Christ. He's the object of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith, the Bible says. And so we keep our eyes on Him. Faith is our victory. Martin Luther said, God our Father has made all things depend on faith so that whoever has faith will have everything and whoever does not have faith will have nothing. So I was working on this message. I came across a, a story about a letter that was found, was found um, in a baking powder can that was wired to the handle of an old pump that really offered the only hope of drinking water on a very long and seldom used trail across Nevada's Amargosa Desert. And here's what the letter said. Let me just share it with you. <laughs> this pump is all right as of June 1932. I put a new sucker washer into it, and it ought to last five years. But the washer dries out, and the pump has got to be primed. Under the white rock, I buried a bottle of water out of the sun and cork end up. There's enough water in it to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. Pour about one-fourth and let her soak to wet the leather. Then <laughs> pour the rest medium fast and pump like crazy. You'll get water, G-I-T. You'll get water. The well has never run dry. Have faith. And when you get watered up, Fill the bottle and put it back like you found it for the next feller. Signed, Desert Pete. P.S. Don't go drinking the water first. Prime the pump with it, and you'll get all you can hold. Friend, I want to tell you, faith is like that well. Faith primes the soul for the water of salvation. And if you'll prime the soul with faith... Whosoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You prime the pump for the overflow of the water, and faith is the means. So do you believe? Do you believe? Can you answer like Mary and Martha Yes, Lord, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Would you bow your head, close your eyes, no one looking about in this place? I invite those who are joining us by television and live stream to just take a moment, don't leave, but take a moment to answer that question, do you believe? I mean, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? If you were to die this moment, would you enter into the presence of the Lord God Almighty? And if not, if you're not sure of that, you can be today. Jesus loves you. He cares about you. He died for you. He came into this world and hung on a cross to pay for your sins. The Bible says that I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. To those who believe, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children 
of God. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourself. It is a gift of God right now. Do you want that gift? If so, call out to him. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I confess my sin to you. And right now, I invite you to come into my life. Forgive me. Become my master and savior and transform me into the person you created me to be. I receive you. Maybe here today, you're like, you're kind of like Mary and Martha in a different sense. And like the man that we read about that you believe, but your faith needs to go deeper. You believe, but you need God to help your unbelief. Would you just tell him that right now? Say, Lord, I believe. I do believe. I know you're my Savior, but God, I want to see your power manifested in my life. And so, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's some of you right now, and you're going through something in your life, and you need, you need God's intervention. And you've already figured out how He's going to do it, you, when He's going to do it, where He's going to do it. And He may be saying, I just need you to trust me and to hold on and to hang on and to walk with me. Would you tell Him right now, if that's you, would you say, Lord, Lord, renew my heart. Lord, give me new strength. To wait on you. And Lord, I'll not tell you how you need to do what needs to be done in my life. But I will obey you every step of the way. And I'll let you do what you want to do when you want to do it in my life. Now Lord, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your word. You said it will not return void. And so Father, do your work in our life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me for our time of invitation? I'll be here at the front. Our staff will be on the aisles. And I want to invite you in the balcony or ground floor to slip out, come forward. By the way, the altar is open. Use the altar. Come and kneel before God. You're praying for somebody. You're praying about a decision. You're praying about the power. Who knows? You just come and, and talk. There's something powerful about a bent knee. But maybe this morning you called on him, that prayer, just a moment ago, you called on him to be your Savior. Would you slip out and come this way? Take one of us by the hand and say, I, call, I called on Christ. I want to be saved. I want Christ to be my Savior. And we'll take it from there. We'll help you. You may be here this morning and say, you know what? I know that. I already know him. I, I need a church home, a church family, and I want to join Ridgecrest. You slip out. You come on. Maybe you haven't been baptized and you need to be baptized and we'll set up a time uh, to, for you to be baptized. Whatever it is, it's important right now. If you, listen, let me tell you something. If there, the tug is there, that's not from Satan. He doesn't tug you to follow God. He'll tell you 15 reasons why not to. And so as we sing, you slip out. I'm here. Staff are here to receive you. You come on right now.